Hello, and welcome back to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we spotlight the individuals and organizations who are creating a better future through food. My name is Annalisa Winther, and in addition to being the host of this show, I also work as a business matchmaker in the food system. I work with startups, helping them to hone their pitch as well as find and get the right investors for their business. And then I also connect investors to the agri-food ecosystem, helping them to find the right deals and position themselves in the ecosystem wherever they can lend the most value with their money. In today's episode, I speak with Brent Loken, who is the global food lead scientist for the World Wildlife Fund. When it comes to solving the climate crisis, food is a big part of the puzzle. Food is responsible for one third of greenhouse gas emissions, but historically, it hasn't been in the spotlight of climate conversations. That is now starting to change, and today we're going to talk about what's unfolding and the actions the world is starting to take. Brent was part of writing two reports that came out recently on how food can be part of the solution. And in today's conversation, we talk through the key findings of the two reports, both of which you can find in the show notes. The first report we discuss is the Exponential Roadmap for Natural Climate Solutions, which outlines a path to reach net zero emissions from the land sector by 2030 through natural climate solutions. And the second report is called Solving the Great Food Puzzle, which gives examples for how each country can achieve the biodiversity, climate, and health goals we've set as an international community by implementing a combination of transformational levers in our food system. Both of these reports recognize that how we solve food is an international problem that we all must take responsibility for and collaborate on to transform, but how we're going to do it in each country is going to vary widely depending on the bioregion they're in and the culture that exists there. These reports take into account the nuances that exist globally and recognize that there is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Every country has to look at what solutions make the most sense for their regions to implement, and together, all of these solutions together will fit together to solve the great food puzzle. One of the most fascinating things I found in this conversation is that both reports outline solutions and a roadmap for change that doesn't require any new technology. It's based on solutions that already exist, and the issue is that we haven't taken the action to implement them. As someone who works with startups and technology, helping investors figure out how and who to invest in when it comes to the future of food, I found this fascinating. For me, it brought up a lot of questions around what are we financing and what technologies do we need to invest in to have the most impact? I find that a lot of this has to do with investing in people and in infrastructure, both of which are very important, but can take a long time before you see the returns on the investment, which leads us to a conversation around do we have the right vehicles for financing that we need to really create the change we want to see in the world. If you enjoy this episode, please consider becoming a patron of the show. 
You can sign up for a monthly or an annual subscription in the show notes, and doing so will directly support the podcast and enable the production of more episodes and storytelling just like this. Lastly, towards the end of the episode, Brent and I talk about how everyone is part of solving the great food puzzle. We all have something to contribute and a role to play. And that's largely based on our zone of genius and the sphere of influence that we have. This is something that I cover extensively with my one-on-one coaching clients. We work on designing your dream career, your dream life, based on your zone of genius and how you want to have an impact. If you're interested in making a shift, I invite you to check out my one-on-one coaching programs. They're personalized accelerators where we go through the fundamentals of whatever you need to put in place to take your career or your company to the next level. For more information, you can visit www.analisawinther.com or check out the show notes. Hello, Brent. Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about how we can fix our food system and what we're going to do to transform it. Hey there, so am I. Very, very happy to be here. Yes. And I want to get started with what exactly you do for a living. So your title is Global Food Lead Scientist at the World Wildlife Fund. What exactly does a global food lead scientist do? So WWF is pretty huge. I I think we're in, geez, over 90 offices worldwide. I think we're upwards of 10,000 employees. So we're a massive, massive NGO. Each office is independent from the other offices. So what we found within WWF is having some sort of internal coordination between the offices in terms of directing where we're going with a specific topic would be helpful. So what the Global Food Lead Scientist does in my role is, is to coordinate the science and the um, scientific endeavors on food systems and the research on food systems within the network and all our network offices and to gently guide and push and uh, lead in terms of which way that uh, at large we would like to go. Yeah, that sounds like a big job with a lot of information. And we're going to dive into two reports that you just released recently. But first, I need to ask, is it true that you discovered an extinct monkey population in Borneo? I read that in my research. I was like, excuse me? (laughs) Yeah, actually, uh, we discovered what we thought was extinct, a monkey species that they hadn't seen for, geez, I can't remember how many years. It was almost 50 years, I believe. And uh, we happened to find it within this forest that we were working in. Uh, It's called the Miller's Grizzled Langer. So if you look it up, it's called the Dracula monkey. So very surprised when I saw the picture. That's a scary monkey to come across that you thought was gone. The Dracula monkey? (laughs) Yeah, so cute though. Yep. Wow. Okay. So you've had a pretty varied career working all over the world and looking at food systems from all different kinds of angles. Yeah. And I mean, when I was in Borneo, one of the reasons that I actually got into food systems is because everything comes back to food, right? So although we were working with orangutans and cloud of leopards and Miller's grizzled langers and all these iconic species, working with the local diet community on some of these rainforest conservation issues, everything came back to food. Everything came back to food and health. And what I found is that uh, we could actually have the same conservation goals, achieve the same sorts of conservation goals by focusing on food, something that everybody loves to talk about. Everybody eats, right? And uh, everybody has a very strong opinion about it. So that's why I switched to working more on food systems and less on more localized community conservation. 
And I'm so glad you say that because that is my mantra all the time and why I also love working in food because it is everything and it's not intangible. It's something we all connect to. It's in all of our control. And as you said, there's it's something that relates to the environment, the society, also our economy. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, with that, I think with some of these big global issues, it's hard to comprehend it. Even when I was working in Indonesia, some people ask, you know, how do I save orangutans? You know, and when they're sitting in the U.S., it's really hard to give them a very tangible connection to, well, you, they can't really go to Indonesia to work on this. Or some people even think, you know, how do I actually, what's the greenhouse gas emissions? What kind of impact can I have? But food is something that every single person can have that immediate impact, right? And that empowerment, that that agency that you feel with it, I think is uh, is why, I mean, I love working on it so much. Yes. And that brings us perfectly into the idea that we need national level action plans. So we've all seen the global targets. We've all read the global headlines around what is the action we need to take as humanity to address the biodiversity crisis, the climate change crisis, the hunger crisis even. And one of the reports that you worked on that just came out is a call for national level action. So why is it that we need national level action and global isn't good enough? Yeah, this report is solving the great food puzzle because, you know, I think that at the global level, we have a very good understanding of what some of the issues are. I worked on the Eat Lancet report, which came out back in 2019. The IPCC is now calling and they've really been more vocally putting out the fact that food and food systems have to change. So I think at the international level, we have a much better understanding of what we have to do with food and food systems. But it's at the national level in terms of how this is going to play out. What are dietary shifts going to look like? What is reducing food loss and waste? What is changes in how we actually produce our food? What does that look like in Indonesia versus Gabon versus Kenya versus Colombia versus the US versus Sweden? You know, all these different places, it's going to look differently in each one of these countries. But when we start to downscale these global targets and these global you know, concepts down to the national level, that's where we really need to understand that food system transformation is very place-based. The types of food that we eat, how we produce our food, our cultures, our national cuisines, and, and, and all of that needs to be taken into consideration when we're talking about this global food system transformation. So within this report, we started to unpack it and started to, to nuance the conversation in terms of what does it look like in different places. Mm-hmm. And of course, every nation has its borders, but one thing it really draws out is this bioregional focus, meaning that the right answers for transforming the food system are related to the environment and the ecosystem. What can you grow there? What's possible in that place? And then it's linked to who are we as people? What is our culture? What is the economy built on? And all these different factors that add up to what creates a food system and how we think about our resources. So you categorize it into three different typologies, type one, type two, type three, in terms of different kinds of nations. Can you talk a little bit about the three categories? This is a massively complex puzzle. And anybody out there that works on puzzles, you know that when you first throw out those puzzle pieces and you start to sort them, it's so complex. And you look at it and you you just are trying to figure out, how do I start this thing, right? How do I organize the pieces to make sense of this? You see the picture but you don't see that with the with how each individual piece, what it looks like, right? And then over time, you start to put the pieces together. You start to organize and group them into categories or colors or textures or whatever it is. And slowly, you start to see this picture emerge. And that's when it starts to get fun. And that's what we're doing with this report is that we, we're starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together, looking at each one of the individual countries as being a piece of the puzzle. 
and that we need to start to assess them and group them and categorize them in a way where food system types or countries share similar characteristics. Because once we start to do that, then we can draw to conclusions about what works in each place. So initially, we looked at Colombia, Brazil, Kenya, and UAE as the four different countries. And what we found is that Brazil and Colombia share a very similar food system in terms of the number of smallholders, the type of food production which is there. They can grow most of their own food within their own borders. Their food insecure within their actual borders. Plus, they are extremely biologically rich and carbon-rich places. Mm -hmm. Ecological Um, hotspots, I think it's called, right? Where they store a lot of carbon within the existing ecosystems. Plants have that superpower. Nature has that superpower. That It's also that conservation aspect is super important of keeping those ecosystems intact. There's these ecological food system hotspots, is what we call them in terms of uh, ecologically rich, carbon rich, but facing massive pressure from the food system. And then you look at Kenya, it's mainly smallholders, right? The smallholder farmers, food insecure. And uh, what is a smallholder farmer? Well, it's a person that normally farms on land, like around two hectares or so. And in uh, Kenya, most of the food is actually produced by smallholders, not large industrial farms. Uh, And then you have the UAE. Which is very different. I mean, the UAE imports 90% of its own food. So when you look at the three different food systems, the actions that are needed to transform each one of these will be very different. You know, when you talk at the global level, you talk about global food system transformation. But then when you get down to solutions in UAE versus Kenya versus Brazil versus Colombia, they're massively different. And that's what we started to unpack here. And although we only presented uh, three food system types in this report, We estimate there's probably six to eight food system types is what we're thinking. And each year we're going to republish the same report with an updated list of countries. So uh, next year, we're hoping to add another 10 countries. The year after that, another, you know, 15 to 20 countries. So after we have, you know, between 40 to 50 countries, we'll have a pretty good sense in terms of how these individual countries are grouped and classified, the different food system types, what levers work, and then that will give us a very good sense about if we want to transform the food system in a particular place, these are the key levers that we should be pulling on. And one thing that really stuck out to me reading the report is that I know globally, there's been a lot of conversations around climate justice, food justice, and the fact that one size fits all solutions don't take into account the nuances of what's possible in each place. And these national level action plans they feel more empowering because you can do what's possible for your nation, but it's not, it feels like it disproportionately affects certain nations who haven't had the same opportunity. A classic example is the shift to alternative proteins, that if we ask everyone in the world to stop eating meat, countries that may just be coming into wealth might want to try that they've never been able to before. And is that fair? There's like an ethical dilemma around it. So I don't know if you have anything to say to that, but to me, it seemed to address that justice factor quite a bit. Yeah, that was definitely at the heart of it, you know, and uh, solutions like alternative proteins or some of the solutions that are presented out there as being these broad global level panaceas might not work everywhere, right? And that's what we're trying to tease out within this report in terms of those innovative solutions and how do we start to say, well, yeah, this this might work in a place like Sweden where I live, but it's probably not going to work in country X or Y. But we're just at the beginning of this journey and this is a massively complex issue. And what we're doing with it is we're trying to simplify the complexity of it. We can't do this for 195 countries, right? It's it's just not possible. But what we can do is if we start to group characteristics of countries by food system types and characteristics, and then we start to draw some lessons from those, then we can move much more quickly 
because time is running out, right? And mm-hmm. we have to move quickly. So any types of robust but very uh, nimble solutions that we can find is it's what we need to be looking at. And it also seems like once you have those groupings or categories, you almost get working groups of we can learn from each other. We can feed each other what's working, what's not. Here's an idea that worked for me that maybe could work for you. When I interviewed C40 cities, that was something that came up of how can mayors of cities around the world talk about how they're creating food system transformation in their city that they have control over. But an idea that works in New York could also work in London or Sao Paulo. It's just needing to be tailored to that local place and what makes sense contextually there. That's exactly the idea. You know, on the UN Food Systems Coordination Hub, that's what they're looking at as they're working with member states in terms of can you set up these groups of countries that can learn from each other. And so, yeah, that, that's exactly what we'd like to do, this, this like cross-pollination of ideas and solutions. You know, so individuals and countries and politicians and business leaders don't feel so alone on this, on this really often tricky, tough journey, right? Mm-hmm. That they feel like, okay, there's somebody else that has experienced this and there are solutions out there and uh, we just need to look for a neighbor or somebody on the other side of the world that we could maybe learn from. So in the report, you have the 20 different levers of transformation that each country has a different level to push on and a different level to control. And in the report, it shows like this country has full capacity to do something here, whereas in this area, probably not so much. And it's probably not where they should focus their efforts. So can you talk about some of those levers for transformation and how it relates to the environmental, economic, and societal relationships in a country? Yeah. So what we wanted to do with this in terms of looking at these levers is we wanted to identify just a handful of key high-level levers that work everywhere, right? So everybody's looking for what are those key actions that work in different countries, and there are a multitude of actions. And we wanted to provide a subset of very important ones that that work across the board, but will pull to different degrees in different places, right? So we ended up classifying them in five different areas, natural resource management, governance and institutions, education and knowledge, technology, trade, and finance as being the um, six different categories that we looked at. And these 20 levers that we assessed, you know, one of the things that we found is that they do pull in different ways in different places. So for example, Brazil and Colombia, the levers that have the highest impact all have to do with land. Mm. You know, all have to do with optimizing land use, all have to do with protecting those high carbon reserves and high biodiversity reserves that they have, right? Whereas in Kenya, what we found is that uh, most of the key levers focused on supporting the smallholder farmer, supporting those individuals that are on the ground, that are working on it, making sure that land tenure rights are in there. Whereas in the UAE, it's uh, mainly tech solutions, which makes sense, right? Because uh, they can't produce a lot of their own food. They have to import it. So really, this investment in tech will probably be the levers that will have the most impact. Now, having said that, it's not to say that the other levers aren't important and won't work in those areas. It's just that if you have $100 and you have to figure out how do I invest my $100, what are those key levers that I should be investing in? It's, you know, what we're trying to do is say, this is how you should allocate your funds and resources and time, you know, Mm. not saying that uh, one of the levers you shouldn't look at at all, but uh, give it limited time and money, you know, you could put most of your effort into these areas. Now, the next step with this is then to say, okay, if we're finding that these key levers work in, uh, for example, Brazil and Colombia or Kenya, then it's to get down to the national level and say, well, what's the national level pathway that needs to be developed? to take these high-level levers and what are the policies in that particular country that need to be put in place to actually implement it in that particular place. So this is not the last step. 
this is still upstream from where we need to go and where like the UN Food System Summit and others where there's a lot of work going into right now developing those you know national level pathways or the NDCs. And what this is hopefully what we want this to do is, is to inform that national pathway development. And what is the vision for implementing national pathway development? Like who's in charge of writing it and coordinating all the actors and making sure that we actually do develop these plans? Because immediately after hearing you speak and talk about it, I was like, cool, how do I get involved in my community, in my country? What can I do? Because there's a lot of what we're going to get into it, but there's also a lot of focus on what an individual can do. And I kind of came up short. I was like, I actually have no idea who to engage, where to go, what to do. And I'm like, fired up. So what it, what is the thinking there in terms of putting all of this out here and then turning that into something people really work on and a vision they really work to create? Yeah, that's a very good question in terms of what do we do with these national level pathways and where do we actually go? I mean, the UN Food System Summit, the idea with that was to kind of start the process of this national pathway development, right? And uh, leading up to the summit, there was a lot of work that had been done with these national pathways. So it's really in its infancy in terms of that coordination. The general idea from an international coordinating center is the actual UN Food Systems Hub as serving as a, as, as a main area that is supposed to coordinate a lot of this pathway development. But the hub is just being developed. So I would say that, uh, you know, hopefully over the next 6 to 12 months, that will become a lot more clear. And in New York next year, I believe, there's going to be a stock take post-UN Food System Summit two years on uh, where are we and what has actually happened. Uh, so hopefully at that time, there'll be a much clearer picture in terms of how to engage with some of these pathways. Mm. And the other thing that came up for me a lot was, is the goal here that every country can become self-sufficient in producing their own food? Because for instance, the UAE, currently they have to import everything, but with technology, it's possible that they could be more self-sufficient. But that then has, of course, implications for trade. And right now our food system is so global. A lot of this focuses on what can we do in the local. So what's the thinking or the conversations happening around that and what the future of trade might look like? Yeah, this is a pretty heated and hot topic in terms of uh, local food. And some people feel very passionately about localizing food, right? Especially with the war in Ukraine, what happened with the current COVID crisis in terms of food and food disruptions. So there's definitely been a growing call for nationalizing food systems, more local food. And I think in some places that works fantastic, right? If you can nationalize your food system and localize it, then in, in, you know often that's that's the way to go. But many countries don't have that luxury, right? They don't have the land and water resources to be able to produce their own food. A lot of countries actually don't. They're always going to be reliant on some form of trade. You know, you look at countries like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Morocco, Iran, Singapore. You know, all these all these particular places are going to have to rely on trade to some extent. So. We have a highly interconnected globalized food system, and we will always have a highly interconnected globalized food system. And that's just the way that it is. And what we need to start doing is that moving forward is trying to figure out, you know, when and where and how can we optimize. And I think what we should be thinking about more is like, you know, where should we be growing certain types of food? You know, in in, in this particular place, in this particular country, is it the best place to be growing things like avocados or or almonds or palm oil or whatever it is, right? And if we can figure out where we should be growing stuff and optimize the land use and food production, then we can do it a heck of a lot better. And one of the things that we actually have found is that in some cases, uh, more local food production actually means more impact, which means more greenhouse gas emissions, which means more biodiversity loss. 
Mm -hmm. So often, you know, you want to solve the problem of reducing these impacts. But if you have a country that is highly trade import dependent, and then now you're calling for localized production, well, they're going to have to clear more land to support that production. And often that's in highly biodiverse areas. So you could be trying to solve one problem and creating another one. Okay, there's a lot of goodness to dive into in what you just said. And I, I want to talk more about natural solutions and technological solutions and how they fit together to optimize what we have on this planet. But I also, before we do that, want to bring in a sentence in the report that like touched me. And it said that businesses are the channels through which a majority of the world's raw materials flow. Their decisions about what, where, and how to purchase, manufacture, market, and sell their products drive transformation of the land sector. So talking about how interconnected food is and how it will always be interconnected, I think a lot of times we forget the connection also to business and that so much of business is derived from raw materials, which is also related to agriculture, whether it's clothes or it's related to forestry and timber and what we use to build our houses or the iron and ores that go into technological products like your phone. It's something that is also so interconnected and we can't decouple the two. So I just wanted to bring that also to the surface that when we're talking about this and continuing our, our conversation, it's not just food we're talking about. It is most things. That we it's produce. everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we we live in a highly inter, interconnected, globalized world and there are, are positive things from that. And there are also also negative things from that. And I think that we should just try and maximize the positives and try and minimize some of those negatives. And and I think that we can do it. Um, you know, we're never going to be able to go away from being so highly connected. And I I, I don't I don't want to. I actually think this global connectedness that 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 we feel to each other is good. You know, the fact that we can experience other cultures and other places makes us realize how just amazing this world is that we live in. And how we need to protect it. You know, I think the more localized sometimes you end up being, the more you only look at your particular place and then you don't worry about those rainforests in that particular country far off or the coral reefs in some far off country. So, you know, I I think the yeah, yeah, the more connected we are, the better. Mm, And this just immediately brings up for me um, a movie trailer I watched last night for a movie coming out called Till. And it's about the killing of a black young 14 year old boy in like decades ago in the South and the mother lived in the North. And she was like, I used to think of what happened in the South was other. It wasn't related to me. Now I know what happens to anyone anywhere is my business. And it's something that we all need to be standing up for and speaking up for. And that's both true for individuals and human rights as it is for nature as a stakeholder too, that we have to be mindful of because we all like water is a good example. We all share the ocean. It's not something that is divvied up exactly. It's something that is a shared resource. So what happens there happens to all of us. And food is also like a shared resources too, right? I mean, what you eat and what you put on your plate, those choices have repercussions all over the world. And even overconsumption has a huge impact or food loss and waste has has a um, huge impact. I mean, if you overconsume calories, that's that's food waste. If you throw a lot of food within the garbage, I mean, those are lost resources that that I think from a global equity standpoint, uh, we could be doing a much, much better job of sharing where this gets used and how it gets used. Mm. And just speaking of the ocean, there wasn't a lot of focus on the ocean in either reports. Was that intentional or just like it will come soon or where where was the ocean in all of this? Yeah, no, it will come soon in both reports. So in the exponential roadmap and the global food food puzzle report, both of them are just looking at the oceans. It's so 
massive. It's a completely mm-hmm. another piece of the puzzle, right? So we're working with stakeholders quite a bit in terms of um, you know talking with them with the next iterations of these. How do we incorporate the oceans and how do we make sure they're not only oceans, but freshwater? Because if you're looking at freshwater systems, I mean, one third of the, all the food produced in the world comes from, from actually freshwater systems, from right. rivers, from aquifers. And you know, how do we protect those? How do we incorporate those? And uh, we're actually discussing with, with partners how we actually do that better. You know, and both of these reports can be considered beta versions. You know, and they're not fully cooked. The solutions aren't totally in there. We wanted to put forth out some ideas that, you know, where we're thinking at this point, but um, with further iterations of these, both of them will continue to be improved and built upon, you know, hopefully over the next few years, we'll have a pretty good sense with both of them of some of these key solutions that we need in different places and how we can scale them. In that sense, it just fascinates me that we've been producing food forever to feed ourselves, but so much of this feels kind of new and how we collaborate on it is new and like how the puzzle fits together is new and There's something to me that's sometimes I link it back to the indigenous knowledge or systems that it seems like we used to know and we forgot. And now we're just rediscovering what it looks like in a modern context. But often when I have these conversations, it's from a not a beginner standpoint totally, but a lot of like we're figuring it out, like we're we're all in the process of figuring it out and working on this together. Yeah, I think that what is new is the complexity of this globalized world that we live in. I mean, never before has there been so many people on this planet and so interconnected and uh, social media. I mean, this podcast here and how we're connecting and talking about things and in, in, in different places. I mean, that's pretty new. But what isn't new and it, what we have to be careful about is presenting like like the Eat Lancet diet that you know we worked on for many years. That wasn't a new diet. It's not like we proposed this massively original diet to the world. It's, I mean, people have been eating this way for many years. You know, you got the Mediterranean diets, you've got other national cuisines that follow the Eat Lancet very well. So, you know, that there was nothing new that we that we actually put forth. It was just what the science was saying. But a lot of cultures and places, they already know this, right? Or local food production, you know, regenerative agriculture is the new buzzword, right? But uh, a lot of indigenous People have been using regenerative practices for a long time. So that's not new, even though it's branded as being new. It's more just rediscovering what we already know. So, you know, with with all these reports, um, you know, one of the things that it really hits home, the exponential roadmap report, the Eat Lancet report, the puzzle report, we're not proposing any new solutions or any necessarily innovative technologies to come in to fix things. What we're really saying is that we have the solutions at hand. We know what we need to do. We know what we need to eat. We just need to rediscover them and amplify those solutions that we already have. Mm-hmm. And that brings us, I think, very well into the exponential roadmap, which is also talking about what can we do? And a thing I loved is it's all things that already exist. We don't have to like invent anything new to make this happen. We just need to implement what we know and rediscover that in, like you said, today's context of how does it work? What, what would it look like today? So first, I want to talk a little bit about what the carbon law is, because that's a very central part of understanding how do we get where we need to go as fast as we need to get there. So what is the carbon law? So there's a carbon law and there's a carbon law for nature. Now, what yes. the carbon law is, is the carbon law tells us how quickly we need to go from the current rate of global emissions down to where we need to be by 2050 to achieve the 1.5 degree limit. 
So it's achieving the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, and what it says is that between now and 2030, essentially, we need to have global emissions from where they are right now today. I mean, we're currently sitting at about 58 gigatons or so. Uh, we need to have that between now and 2030. Between 2030 and 2040, we need to have that again. And between 2040 and 2050, we have to have that again. So by 2050, we're essentially decarbonized in all sectors, which means that all sectors have are emitting almost zero emissions of carbon, period. So we've completely decarbonized. We've achieved Paris. But on top of that, what it's saying is that we need to take a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and we have to store it underground. And any pathway or any route that we take, any modeler that, that's out there that's been you know modeling climate, they're all saying that we have to store a lot of carbon, take it out of the atmosphere and store it. Just decarbonizing all sectors won't actually get us there. So it's not only pulling down carbon dioxide, reducing it, it's also storing a lot of it. So that's the carbon law. The carbon law for nature then expands upon that and, and says, but, well, actually any pathway towards achieving the carbon law or the 1.5 degree limit relies on nature. And that how do we actually use nature to our benefit in terms of reducing emissions that comes from how we produce food and cutting down our forests and tilling soils? And then how do we start restoring nature in a way that we can start to store some of that carbon underneath the ground, which is which which we all know that we have to do. And that comes back to food systems because we can't do it without food systems. And 80% of all the solutions that comes from the natural climate solutions are directly tied to food, what we eat and how we produce. And just when we talk about storage, there are if you're in the startup world, especially so many solutions right now talking about how we're going to suck carbon out of the atmosphere, we're going to create products with it, we're going to store it underground, quite physically in big chunks. But then there's also this point of uh, nature being a natural vehicle for storage. So when you're talking about carbon storage, I just want to be clear on what spectrum you're talking about, or are you talking about all of it? We're talking about nature. We're not talking about carbon capture and storage. We're not talking about developing a new kind of technology to do this for us. And the reason that we're very specific about that is because there is no proven technology at this point that shows us that we can pull enough carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at the scale and pace that we need to, to stay on track to achieve this carbon law, all right? Um, it just doesn't exist. It's, it's not there. Well, no, it actually does exist, and that's plants, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The only place and the only thing that does it for us is a pretty marvelous thing. These 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 plants and trees and soils and everything that we have. It's nature that's been doing it for you know forever. Uh, all the algae within the sea, you know, the plankton um, has been storing carbon. And what we're saying is that we just need to restore nature so that nature starts to work for us. Uh, we need to plant some more trees. We need to make sure that we treat soils better so that we're using this wonderful natural technology that we already have. Mm. And I think that's important, again, just to talk about that in the exponential roadmap, it's natural climate solutions. Everything already exists. And you make a clear distinction in this report about the impact that the people on the land can have and then the enabling actors. So what does people on the land mean? Who are we referring to when we talk about people on the land and the action they can take to create change? Yeah, well, there's the individuals that are actually like, you know, tilling the soils that are producing the food for us. It's 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 all those farmers and the individuals that are yeah, producing our food 
every single day and, and uh, the forgotten people often, right? And I think that we take farmers for granted in terms of all the work that they're doing, but they can't do it by themselves, right? There needs to be enabling environments that create the conditions, the financing, the policies that get put into place that can allow them to do the work and to scale the work that we're telling them to do, right? And at the end of the day, farmers are going to produce what we tell them to produce, what the market is bearing, right? Uh, so you need both sides of it. You need the people on the ground, on the land who are working in these to to be able to make those changes. Plus you need those environments, you know, the and the same goes for like consumers, right? You can't expect, and there's been a lot of talk about consumers shifting diets and buying different foods and and that's all great, but consumers can't do it by themselves. Consumers also need the enabling environment to make sure that they have the the right choices of food are out there, that food is affordable for them, that the policies are in place so that food is actually in the store, that you're supporting business retailers and also to be able to store the right types of food. And I mean, so all of that needs to be working together. It's not just the people on the land. It's not just the consumers that have to do all the work. It's got to be, it's got to be both sides. Mm -hmm. So people on the land, meaning indigenous peoples, foresters, farmers, livestock managers, and public land managers, like I believe of national parks, right? That would be public land. And they're then supported by the enabling actors, which is social movements, meaning when we come together and say, hey, we demand this kind of change, government, businesses, and the financial sector, where are we putting our money? What are we demanding in the market? And the goal from there and the solutions proposed in Exponential Roadmap center around protecting, managing, and restoring, and restoring what we yeah. have on this planet. So I want to dive into like each of those categories a little bit to talk about what we mean by protect, manage, and restore just to start with protect, I was really surprised to read that when it comes to protecting, it's not that much more of the Earth's land surface we need to protect to be able to safeguard a lot of the irrecoverable carbon. And by that, it relates to the earlier part of our conversation of the biological hotspots, meaning these are places that if we destroy them like the Amazon forest, there is a certain amount of carbon that will be released that we cannot then store again, and we get ourselves into deeper doo-doo and a deeper problem than we are in now. So in yep. that sense, I was like, that doesn't sound that hard. Like we we can manage to do this probably, hopefully some way. Um, but yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to protect what we already have and what are the actions we need to take around that? You know, COP15 is being held next week in Montreal. And a lot of COP15 will be focusing on on just this issue, right? We've got these uh, um, these last areas of protected areas that we need to actually do something about protecting. Uh, there's been calls for actually protecting as much as 50% of the planet. Um, wow. I think, Oof. I think, yeah. I mean, and like the call with that is, you know, 50% for one species and 50% for everything else. I think that's a pretty fair trade, 50% for us and 50% for everything else that we share this planet with. That's We probably won't get there. So anywhere between 30 to 50% is probably what we're looking at in terms of having to protect. There's a huge discussion out there in terms of what does it mean to actually protect? You know, Do we put up those fences and walls around these areas and just call them protected areas and keep people out? Do we work with indigenous communities on, on developing different levels of rights and access to these areas? So there's a lot of discussion in terms of how we're going to go about protecting these areas. For sure, we need local communities on board. 
we need indigenous communities on board to protect these areas. And when I was in Indonesia working with the Dayak, that's that's what we did. We worked with local communities to protect the forests that have always been theirs, right? And uh, we could not have done it without them. They are the guardians of the forest. Without them, uh, we're not going to be able to protect these areas. What's left? Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot, like what you're talking about in terms of numbers, but to get the political will to be able to protect just the... Um, these amounts of areas, it's quite an uphill battle, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of people look at these areas as being, uh, well, we can get money out of it if we cut it down, if we convert it, if we turn it into you know something else. But to just protect it, uh, there's no value in it. Which is also a key point, and I think one of the first ones made is the need to create no deforestation supply chains, and really posing a question to businesses around can how you source and what you do drive land regeneration instead of exploitation and really changing how you look at what is the potential of this land? What can we do with it? What value can we extract with it? And what does value even mean in this context? Yeah, there's quite a bit of work going into this right now. Uh, A lot more businesses, I think, are eager to walk this road, uh, but more work needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of calls in the report too on how that will be the future. Like the businesses that are going to win are ones that take all of life into account and are life affirming, not life destroying in that aspect, which I love. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As long as we also um, educate consumers on the need for that. Right. So as long as we bring um, consumers along this journey through podcasts like this and others that are, that are really helping to show everybody out there in terms of why this is so critically important. Mm Hmm. Which then brings us into managing a little bit, which is talking about how do we manage the resources we already have and the systems we already have and that we are in place and we aren't using. So that brings us into climate smart forestry, grazing, so the use of animals on land, farming, our dietary shifts, something you and I can choose to do, and how we manage that food loss and food waste. So Are there some good examples around management or things that we should be mindful of when it talks about how do we work with the systems that we already have now and where do we need to go with those? Yeah, I mean, this is the largest uh, area that we have in terms of the total amount of potential to be able to mitigate and store carbon, right? And when you look at the lands that are out there, uh, most of the lands that we have today are actually working lands. You know, it's those grazing lands. It's the all the farming lands and croplands. It's those forestry areas um, that we have. But what we've done up until this point is we've been pretty careless about how we manage things. You know, we've had this abundance of resources and we've just kind of gone in and degraded and, you know, did what we want. And uh, what, what we're saying with this is by managing better, by managing the protected forests that we actually have, if we learn to cut down the trees a little bit better and regrow them, or if we can manage it in better ways, we can store tons of carbon in those areas. If we graze our livestock in a different way, we can store a lot more carbon within the um, within the soils. And also farming, you know, the way that we're farming right now is a huge emitter of carbon dioxide. So so just changing how we, how we farm, you know, and there's different ways that we can frame this, and some are calling it regenerative agriculture, some are calling it agroecological. There's organic, there's climate smart, and you know, however you want to frame it, it's all framed around this idea of uh, producing more food with less impact. Hmm. Yes. And then restore is the last piece of this, which is restoring ecosystems that have been lost or areas that are vitally important. And that's both 
forest yeah. and wetlands. Can you just talk a little bit about what that looks like and also what works and what doesn't? That really stuck out to me in the report too around there's kind of not right and wrong ways, but more effective ways than others. And that links us back to conserve from the beginning of like restoration is hard. It can be really hard and it can be hard to do it right. Restoration is, is extremely difficult, but critically important. And when we talked about the carbon law, we talked about the fact that not only do we need to reduce emissions, but we need to store a ton of carbon dioxide in plants and soils and in biomass. And that's the only way that we can actually achieve this 1.5C limit. That's it. I mean, we have to restore nature. So what this restoration category gets into is just how do we actively take some of this degraded land and let it be reclaimed by nature. Let's restore some of the forest and the grasslands and the wetland areas that are like the mangrove areas that we uh, have been so reckless with over the past, you know, 30, 40 years. You know, as you pointed out, to take it from a degraded state to a restored state is very difficult. Some areas will be easy. Some areas that are adjacent to tropical areas, uh, some of those areas can be restored just by taking them off production, right? just by letting the forest reclaim them. But other areas are going to take active management and active planting of trees and such. And, uh, you know, there is no clear indication about how we're actually going to do that and how we're going to finance it. And finance it in a way that we can actually do it at scale and do it as quickly as what is needed to follow the carbon law. So theoretically, we know we have to do it. And what we present here is a theoretical framework in terms of the pace and scale that is needed. But it's going to be tough. Yes. And I think financing is something that we have to talk about, which is key. Yeah. where does the money come from to do everything we've been talking about in this episode? Like how, how are we financing this? What do we, what kind of financing do we think about? Like what's been the discussion in and around that to get more money flowing towards these solutions? I mean, there's always lots of discussion about finance, right? But lots of discussion and uh, a lack of clear commitments. This is one of the tricky things is that, mm. you know, national level leaders, policymakers always say, well, there's no money there. We don't have money available to actually do this. But COVID comes around and all of a sudden trillions of dollars gets printed and money's there. You know, so money's there. But it's uh, do we have the political will to be able to put it into this? Is there appetite to be able to put it into something like this? So in many cases, it's just redirecting some of the financing, rebalancing some of the subsidies that are out there and putting it towards some of the solutions that we already know that we need to have. We need to manage better. We need to restore. We need to protect. You know, I'm just thinking about financing and why, it, I mean, it, it's always so tricky. This, you know, at all of the cops, all of the international climate negotiations, a lot of them get stuck when it comes to financing. Who's actually going to pay for this? And is it the responsibility of the nations that caused these problems? Or is it the responsibility of the nations that didn't? Is it everybody's problem? Did some people that got rich off of uh, exploiting nature um, and the earth, uh, are they more responsible than others? And it seems like, I mean, at COP this year, one of the good things is that for the first time, loss and damage was talked about. And what that means is that the countries that are going to be mostly affected by uh, the impacts that we're going to see from climate change, they're going to get some financing from the countries that caused most of this problem. So mm -hmm. it's, made, it's mainly from the north to the south. And uh, But sounds good. We countries agreed upon that. It wasn't the final cover text, but no money was put on the table, right? Yeah. So still, we don't know how much it is. We don't know who's going to pay for it. Um, we don't know how it's going to be 
managed. They're going to start talking about that over the next year. And hopefully at COP28, they're going to figure that out. But still, once again, when it comes to the actual numbers, it's really hard to get countries to actually to actually commit. Are there na- any nations you really admire who you feel are leading the way or leading the charge just in terms of implementing a lot of this, even on their own will or being like, you know what, forget the global conversation. We just think this is the right thing to do and we're going to try. Implementing which which parts? I mean, really any part of it. <laughs> if there's any any country that is making commitments in this space and saying, even if it's not the whole world doing it at once, we're going to try leading the way in terms of making an effort and protecting, restoring, conserving, you know, transitioning our food system and thinking in the context of what we've talked about today and these kinds of solutions. I would say there's pockets and there's different countries working on different things. I um, did a TED talk and we did this animated video that we produced uh, back in 2019. It's called The Perfect Farm. And we had to come up with case studies for that. Countries that were doing just this, right? This uh, that, that were implementing innovative food production practices. And we had a tough time coming up with examples of countries that were doing this. You know, So we found some examples about um, case studies where it was happening, but it's always these small pockets. You know, So there are some countries where they are starting to change how they produce food, but on very small scales. Uh, dietary shifts are happening in some places. I mean, I live here in Sweden, and I would say the Nordics are really leading the way when it comes to uh, perceptions about diets. I mean, Germany is starting to come around in terms of reducing meat consumption, which I think is quite amazing. The Netherlands. So I think I think Europe is starting to get there. Some some parts of the world reducing food loss and waste. I think people and some businesses are starting to talk about it. And I think all of this is fantastic. I love the progress that's being made in these different parts. What worries me though is it's not fast enough. Yeah. You know, and if and if we're and if we're talking about a hundred year time frame, like we'd realized this problem a hundred years ago. And we said, well, let's just take a hundred years to transform societies and kind of head down this journey. Then I'd be less worried. But what we're facing is we're facing such a monumental shift of actions and ambition that needs to be raised in the next, you know, 30 years. And we just need to take what's out there, these wonderful examples that are out there, and we need to scale them so much more quickly. Mm -hmm. And I just want to let that sink in for everyone. 30 years. That's crazy. That is soon. That is in all of our lifetimes. And it's also what I try to bring so much attention to with this show is the sense of empowerment that you can make a difference, whether you work in food or not, just by choosing what you eat, who you buy from, the, the voice, using your voice to talk about this. Social movement was one of the first things, right? Governments are slow. If we start demanding it, things start going. We need to be a little bit educated, which is why these kinds of reports are great on like, okay, well, what do we need to do? And that's also why everyone on this show gets asked about their vision for the future. There is so much agreement when I ask people that question that come on this show. We know what the future is. It's very clear. And the video you mentioned of the perfect farm is beautiful because sometimes there's also this feeling of its tech versus natural climate solutions. Yeah. And which camp are we going to be in? The wizard and the prophet is how it's often referred to. And in that video, it perfectly shows what's possible when it comes to how we can understand and optimize the resources we have using technology as an enabler, but keeping nature in the center. And I thought it was such a needed animated depiction for painting the future and that powerful use of sci-fi almost to say, this is what the world could look like. 
And this is totally in our grasp. A lot of what's in that video already exists. It just hasn't been implemented. And that's where we get into the need for financing and like also us as people using our voices, which is just that that's big piece in itself if we use our voices. Yeah. And with that video, I mean, you know, we we're also very clear and I wanted to be very clear about the fact that in some places, tech solutions are probably going to work, right? But in some places, it's just uh, local solutions. It's these indig- it's this indigenous knowledge that needs to be supported and scaled. Um, so, you know, coming back to that, to those different puzzles and how that's what we're really, you know, really talking about there is, you know, it doesn't have to be techs and tech and robot and precision implementation of fertilizer in all countries. In some places, it's just uh, supporting local smallholder farmers and indigenous knowledge and scaling that. But to me, that's the key point of meeting in the middle and saying it's not either or. It's not that one is better than the other. It's both. It is that the room is big enough for all of us and all the solutions and the diversity of solutions. And just like nature is stronger with biodiversity, we are too when we have diversity of solutions and we don't have all our eggs in one basket or we're not all trying to be one thing. What makes us beautiful is that those differences. And that's how we support this healthy world. All solutions as long as they're nature positive. Mm-hmm. Right. Very good point. So it's it's a very large tent as long as certain conditions are met that you're restoring biodiversity, you're decreasing your carbon emissions, you're reducing your impact on this, you know, on this planet. So that's where the concept of planetary boundaries in terms of, uh, you know, so, I mean, from my standpoint, however you produce your food, go for it. As long as it's done with meets those particular conditions, then call it organic or climate smart or regenerative or agroecological, whatever, right? You know, industrial, yeah. all all solutions, all hands on deck. It's a very large tent. When it comes to new solutions or even just checking the solutions we have against that criteria, what can we do? Like, is there, because that to me seems the tricky part is that it's kind of like every action does have some adverse reactions and it's hard to fully understand how you affect the puzzle or all the ways that things are interconnected. So if you develop a new solution, how can you check that it's in support of biodiversity, that it is taking in more carbon than it emits? Or I can't remember the other three you said, but what can you do to actually make sure you're doing the right thing? Yeah, that's why we come back to this puzzle report that we started with, you know, and with that report, we're trying to solve just that, trying to minimize the impact that we have. And I think often a solution that is proposed or implemented in a particular place and it has these adverse consequences because we had, we're pulling on the wrong lever in the wrong place. And when you pull on the wrong lever in the wrong place, you're going to have a lot more uh, negative impacts than you would if you pulled it on the right levers, right? For example, in a place like Kenya, if you're, if you're not supporting smallholder farmers, if you're, if you're not uh, supporting land tenure rights, and if you're pulling or investing in solutions that are pulling counter to that, then you're going to increase your negative impact, right? So what we're hoping to do with this is that by identifying, okay, these these are those key transformation levers, then we know that with these key transformation levers, we're going to maximize our positive impacts and we're going to minimize our, like those negative impacts that you're talking about. Mm. To me, there's a mindset shift in business that takes place of when you're going through your product testing and everything else, you're looking at nature as a stakeholder and the community as a stakeholder. And it's not just your customer or it's not just you and your profit line. It is a bigger picture you need to check in with. And the technological solution or the product is a subset of the greater vision of what are we trying to achieve, like supporting the local landowners to live a healthy life and make sure there's prosperity as opposed to 
the adverse effects yep. and it's part it needs to be part of the process when you're developing something new to be to check in constantly on that and actually involve those stakeholders yeah and i think consumers are becoming a lot more um educated on this you know topic what kind of impact uh, is what i'm buying having on the planet and also on people and bringing in a people component and the impact on local communities i think is 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 absolutely critical and you know when we're talking about communicating that i think we also have to do a much better job of telling that story and showing where the impacts lie. And um, they've been hidden so far, but I think uh, we're doing a much better job of um, showing them in some areas. Yeah. And one thing that stuck with me when I saw you speak at New York City Climate Week was that uh, so much money gets put into creating these kinds of reports, but then we need to communicate them out that people actually use them and implement them and do something with them. And it was interesting to even bring up the role of influencers. You know, who isn't on Instagram? Who isn't on TikTok? Who isn't on Facebook or some other LinkedIn? And what? how do we start bringing the conversation into the mainstream and also having role models to show this is what it looks like and involving that aspect of communication? Because it does feel like it can fall short sometimes. Hugely short. Just look at uh, Coca-Cola and McDonald's and these major multinationals and how much money they put into communications. They get it. They know that by putting out a lot of advertisements that can demonstrate and show their product as being cool and hip and sexy that people are going to buy it right but it seems like in the environmental field often we say well people are just going to want to see this and they're just they, they just want to do the right thing so therefore i'll put a couple thousand dollars towards communications and that's going to be enough right but it's not right i think there has to be a massive push towards amplifying the communications towards scaling this towards uh making this type of lifestyle hip and cool, right? The people aspire to this sort of lifestyle, this low impact lifestyle versus the lifestyle of high impact, right? And the mm -hmm. high impact lifestyle no longer gets um, gets glamorized in a way. And it's always going to be there, but uh, we just have to equal the playing field a bit better. Yeah. Or create a different high level aspirational lifestyle that is also good. You know, like what is what is a different definition of that mean? It's an interesting... Yeah. Thought exercise. Absolutely. There's two things I want to just bring up before I ask you the last four questions everyone gets asked. And okay. the first is related back to financing. And one thing I've heard more and more in conversation is the concept of blended finance, meaning it's government money, it's private money, maybe it's philanthropic dollars. But when it comes to who's financing this transition, where is the money and the commitment coming from, that it might need to be a multi-stakeholder thing. And I'm just wondering what if that's come up in your conversations or if there's a view on what the financing technology looks like. This is also part of when you talk about technology that can work crowdfunding restoration using uh, different forms of monitoring, or maybe it's being able to audit carbon credits. We need these new financial vehicles or ways of talking about money that enable us to create the system. So I just want to bring in a little bit of that, like what's the new thinking or the new vehicles we're looking at in this space? Yeah, I'm I'm not a financing expert on this. Um, so I'm going to uh, not say very much on this topic out of fear of saying the wrong thing in terms of uh, what I will say on the financing comment is really comes back to what we talked about before is the only way that we're going to be able to get ourselves out of this mess is to finance it, right? And we need countries to step up. And there are some countries that are actually stepping up to do this financing, right? And and whether it's blended finances, we have to create the mechanisms and the institutions to be able to support what these huge sums of money. We have to make sure that it gets into the people who are doing the work, the people that are on the ground, the people that are 
that are doing the protect, managing, restoring areas, right? And often what has happened is that it gets stuck with somebody else and it doesn't get to the place where it, where it actually has to go. So lots of scaling has to be done on this. When you say scaling, what what do you think of with that word? More money. More money. More money, more, more quickly. Yeah. And the money's there. It's just how it gets used, right? And where it gets directed to. And uh, how it gets used, you know, and especially with so many crises that are popping up all over the world in terms of how do we actually finance and solve all of these at the same time is going to be a tricky thing moving forward, whether it's uh, health, whether it's uh, uh, war, whether it's climate, whether it's biodiversity, you know, there's uh, there's a lot hitting us at the same time. Totally. And there were a couple other things with technology in terms of what could be helpful and what's needed. And I bring up technology because I know a lot of you listening somehow work with technology in one way or another. And I want to make sure we connect these worlds and connect the natural climate solutions with what's happening in those conversations. So one is that there is a need for more monitoring, reporting, and verifying in and around solutions and how we can better understand their impact. So that's like automated soil sampling, satellite monitoring, being able to monitor disease and pest outbreak before it happens, a lot around geospatial data, Mm. what we can see from drones looking at the land. And then there's this idea of direct physical enablers, which is the inputs, the seeds we use, the crop and the field analyses we do, how we can use artificial intelligence or robotics that help us to weed. And like, for me, a lot of what comes up is how do we optimize or create effectiveness around the jobs that need to be done to make it more efficient. And that feels like the role of technology to me in this versus it being we lead with this is what, like we talked about before, this is what the whole world needs to look like or do. So I'm wondering if there's any technologies you're really bullish on or that when we talk about scale, you're like, I wish we could implement this tomorrow. Like we just, if we could do this and like get this done, that would help to move the needle. Yeah. So we're doing quite a bit of thinking on this at the moment. We're actually producing an innovation report, which we have coming out in March, builds on the Great Food Puzzle report. And how we're looking at innovation is we're looking at it as also being very place-based. So we're going to be looking at innovation by food system type. So the first report, we've got three different food systems. We're going to, you know, we think there's probably six to eight. And we think that innovation will look very differently in different places. So in some food system types, it might be more social innovations, political innovations, institutional innovations that are going to have to come in and do this. In other places, it's going to be more of the traditional technology innovations, like some of the you know examples that you just highlighted, uh, whether it's uh, on the farm practices, precision agriculture, drones, geospatial uh, work, uh, you know, alternative proteins, whatever it is, right? So that that could work in some areas, but it's going to be very place-based, right? And again, with the, with the innovation, we have to be looking at it very carefully because not all solutions are going to work everywhere. And if we're trying to push a particular type of innovation in the wrong place, we're going to have those negative consequences that we want to minimize, right? So yeah. um, we're going to be uh, putting this report out there in March and hopefully starting to tease some of these, kind of rethink our concept of innovation and how we look at it. You know, And you know what, what, what I often see with this is a particular innovation or technology gets touted as being the answer. This is the thing that's going to come down and have all this impact. And yeah, maybe in a particular place and with a particular constituency, but not everywhere, right? And 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 that um, really downscaling and place-based nature that, that we're working on at the moment. Thank you. That was actually quite a helpful answer. 
And I think it leads us very well into the next question, which is, what is your vision for the future of food in 10 to 15 years? So if we need to make everything happen by 30, where are we 15 years from now? What does that look like? No, I'll divide it by three different actions. I would say from a consumption side, I think that in 15 years, more people are going to have a much greater idea about the impact of the food that they eat. I think that the trends towards uh, less meat-heavy diets will probably continue in many parts of the world. So I think those are very positive trends. And what I'm I'm hoping is that we can also tackle the hunger and the undernutrition at the same time. So in this perfect idealized world in 15 years, you know, we'll have those areas that are reducing their consumption of meat and and animal source foods, uh, increasing their consumption of plant source foods, uh, while at the same time in other areas, we're tackling these awful burdens of malnutrition and undernutrition that that they are facing. And the zero hunger world in 15 years would be quite quite amazing. Uh, From a food production side, you know, I really hope we start to wrestle and start to finance and 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 start to figure out how we start to you know produce food um, a lot better, reduce our impact, uh, figure out how to produce more food, optimize more food without actually you know without actually cutting more trees. How do we optimize the food on all the land that we have? And uh, you know, whether it's regenerative, whether it's industrial, whatever it is, and I have a feeling that in you know over the next decade or so, we're going to start to think about that a lot more. And I see that hopefully starting to be scaled. I mean, there's a lot of financing going into that right now, like in the like in the U.S. There's tons of money, which is actually happening right now in this. And food loss and waste, you know, in 15 years, if if we could figure out how to stop wasting so much food. You know, if we could cut that number by half, you know, 30% food loss and waste right now, some estimate as size 14 or as high as 40. If we could get that down to 15 to 20% wasted in the next 15 years, that would have a huge impact as well, too. So I see positive trends. I see positive movement on this. But coming back to the exponential roadmap thinking, you know, we're starting on this journey, but we just need to make sure that we exponentially increase it between now and the very near future. So I always ask the follow-up of what are we missing to get there? I think we're missing all with food. One of the challenges with food is is it's such a new topic, right? When you look at the other sectors, when you look at um, electricity or transport, everything, I mean, people have been talking about climate change for years, but they're just now starting to realize the fact that food has such a huge impact on the climate, um, has such a huge impact on water loss and biodiversity and loss and our health also. And we need to figure out how to scale this message much more quickly than happened with the other sectors. You know, it took 30 years to get to the point where people stopped really debating climate change and whether it was real, right? And we don't have that kind of luxury of food systems. We need to get food on the table at all of these international conferences, whether it's the climate conference, the biodiversity conference, because it's been largely ignored up until this point. And if we can do that, if we can achieve that, then... Um, we're going to have a huge impact. And, you know, so that's, that's what's missing is, is, is really this high level conversation of food and the impact that food has, you know, this recognition that we can't achieve all these international agreements without looking at food and using a food systems approach. Um, and we're getting close. At COP27 this year, many people called it the food cop because food is discussed in so many different areas. There were pavilions, there were tons of side events. I think there's five different pavilions dedicated just to food. Uh, so we've seen the um, conversation pivot and shift over the last couple of years, but it still needs to work its way into the negotiators and to the high level decisions. It's not there yet. 
in that sense, it's shocking, right? Like, how is this just getting on the agenda now? But it's true. Well, and it really is getting yeah. into the mainstream now where it just, I, I keep saying, I feel like the wave is just starting to pick up. Like we haven't even begun to see the focus that's going to be on food in the years to come, which makes it exciting to be in this space. But you're also like, how is it just happening now? <laughs> how is it just happening? Yeah. And I think that those of us that work on food kind of probably realize that, but um, we don't have that 30 year luxury like mm-hmm. the other sectors did. But, you know, even this year in the in the final cover text coming from COP, they still didn't recognize that fossil fuels was a main contributor of climate change, you know? Yes. Even after all this time. So uh, there's a lot of work to do, not only on food systems, but in other sectors as well. So when it comes to the work you're doing, what collaborations are you looking for? I always say we have listeners from all around the world. You never know what help can come back to your inbox. What is it that you need to move what you're doing forward or what help would you love to have in any way? We need everybody on board. Yes. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but it needs everybody. What I think is very important is that everybody needs to figure out what that means for themselves. You know, and if mm-hmm. you're if you're a painter, paint. If you're a if you're a parent, then parent. If you're a policymaker, then you know, make good policy. If if you're a if you're an athlete, then bring it into your athletic, you know, endeavors, whatever it is that you do, figure it out what you can do as an individual and just do it better. Right. And just make sure that whatever it is that, that you do is having the kind of impact that we need. And I think if we can all start thinking like that in terms of what are my particular strengths and skills and what are, what are my, my particular talents, that's, what's going to work. It's by taking all of that and, um, putting it together, you know, not, not saying that, uh, any one action is needed more than the other. Um, it's all needed. Whatever ideas you have, let's put them out on the table. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a sphere of influence and everyone has a zone of genius. That's also what I work with, work with a lot of my coaching clients on is like, what is it that you have to offer and how do we have you tap into that center of power that then you start bringing it to the world, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're an artist, whether you're a parent, whether you're an a- athlete, everyone has influence. And I, again, loved that part of the conversation of how do we use our influence to affect change and food system transformation? And I think, and I think many- once people find that, then they'll know what it is, right? They'll know how to affect change. They'll, whether it's just the, those simple conversations that you have with your kids or it's, or it becomes something else. And when you, when you find that sphere of influence, that particular talent, then, then, then that's when great things happen. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. You then come into a place where it feels like a calling and there is no doubt. You just know I need to do this or I need to talk about this or we need to like, it's a force of nature in itself once you tap into that place and then you start living very differently and showing up very differently, which is a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. I I want to check in and ask, see if there's anything I didn't ask you that you want to mention before we wrap up. Yeah, no, I think this has been a nice, a very thorough, very nice conversation. I think we covered a lot of topics here. So yeah, nothing from my side. Well, there's one thing we didn't cover. I have to ask that's been bothering that? me. So when you discovered this monkey, were you just walking in the jungle or like, <laughs> how? <laughs> how did it happen? No, no, actually, we were, I was there studying cloud leopards and orangutans. And we were monitoring these uh, natural salt licks in the forest, uh, which is a salty type area. And a lot of animals would actually come down to it. And we photographed this uh, monkey that looked very strange. We'd never seen it before. And um, 
Uh, I had this primatologist on our team and he looked at it and he had the suspicion that this was this particular monkey and there had never been a picture taken of it ever. So we had to go back to museum pelts to figure out what it was. And lo and behold, it was this monkey that I don't think they'd seen. I think the last time they saw it was in the 1940s or 50s. And uh, there we go. The Miller's Grizzled Langer. It's a really cool monkey. So you should, you should check it out. Well, I will definitely be Googling that when I hang up. Thank you so much for coming on today, for telling us all about the work you've been doing. I highly encourage people to follow you. What's the best way they can get in touch with you? Maybe it's on social media or another way, but if they want to keep following the work that you're doing. Yeah, I'd say Twitter or LinkedIn. It's just at Brent Mulkin and they can find me. Perfect. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. Appreciate it. All right. That's all for today. So what were your thoughts on this episode? I'd love to hear them. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or email me at nordicfoodtechpodcast at gmail.com. If you really liked it, consider becoming a patron and supporting the show for a few dollars every month. The link to do so is in the show notes or visit www.nordicfoodtech.io. Your contribution will make all the difference and enable me to tell more good stories about how we're creating a better future through food. Thanks again for listening. And I'll see you next time.